0: Welcome, everybody, to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on Asia, China, and the United States in the 21st century. We've got a special guest host with us, everyone's favorite member of Parliament in Great Britain, elevated from guest to co-host, Tom Tugendhat. Welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great that you're here. I'm getting word I'm gonna have to up my hosting game, because now we're gonna have real experts here as hosts. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. And then we're going to be joined. uh, This is a real double header that won't that word won't make any sense to Tom. But this is a real double header uh, of a game we've got because not only do we have a chance to talk with Tom a little bit, but then we're all three of us are going to talk with Michelle Flournoy, a very special guest. So, Misha, take it away. I know you're dying. You have the question you got for a Tom that you've been dying to ask. Hot, hot off the presses. First, Tom, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Look, it's a huge pleasure to be back. I'm astonished you allowed me back after last time. But, you know, you're very gracious. Thanks, John. Thanks, Misha. The,
2: the, listener, the listener response was so overwhelming. We were told, not least in the mail from John's mom... <laughs> That if we didn't bring you back as a co host, she wasn't going to listen anymore.
1: So, well, I have a face for radio. (laughs)
2: uh, We are, it's so great to have you with us and and bring the perspective. We like to think at the Pacific Century that we're actually restoring the special Atlantic relationship. So we, we, we just span the globe. Uh, but there's actually something really interesting I'd like to talk to you about. There was a, a blockbuster report in The Telegraph today that UK universities, including Cambridge, uh, were collaborating uh, with Chinese research institutes that have been identified by the United States as being involved in uh, security uh, development, uh, so nuclear weapons development and, and other issues. Uh, what's going on? with that and and uh, how real is it how serious is it and and what what should you guys be doing about it and and even
1: us well look it's a it's a it's a pretty worrying report frankly it's an extraordinary piece of journalism by juliette samuel of the telegraph and a very very powerful um account of frankly either um very very poor judgment or a remarkable lack of curiosity on behalf of um many academics as to who they're cooperating with. Now, I think there's also a huge responsibility on the UK government that, frankly, we should be advising universities on uh, decisions like this, because the reality is many universities are already being cautious. Um, But this this exposes a genuine weakness that uh, our government could easily find out the answers to by simply speaking to our allies across the pond. Uh, But universities would find it harder to find out what was going on. So I I have to say, I think this is extremely concerning because what we're seeing is unintended collusion uh, with a power that, you know, they're not making their nuclear weapons to defend us, are they?
2: Uh, it, you know, it's something the U.S., you, you know, your point about um, uh, thinking uh, more broadly about this, this question of interaction and, and something we will probably talk with Michelle about, you know, for the U.S., we've, we've also gone from, well, let's worry about Confucius Institutes and, and propaganda to the Thousand Talents program in which American high-level uh, research scientists and, and other academics are paid to collaborate with uh, Chinese partners, which, you know, in a perfect world would be something that, that the scientific community welcomes, but that's not the geopolitical environment we're in. So it sounds like you're facing what we're facing. It'd be really interesting, by the way, to talk to our friends in Japan, our friends in France, uh, Germany, uh, Canada, other places, and see if, if this is just the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, what I think we should do is we should reach out to Juliet and see if we can get her on the show and uh, talk to her about this.
1: I'm sure she'd be delighted to. And I can tell you, I've reached out to colleagues and my fellow chairs in uh, Australia and uh, Canada and New Zealand. And I can tell you, it's very similar to the show that they're seeing there. And although France and Germany, it's a bit different because of the linguistic obstacle, obviously, uh, the reality is actually anybody who is talented, who can uh, really demonstrate capability is uh, attractive in these terms and uh, and it's certainly something that we're all seeing.
2: Well, I think uh, since since it's a perfect segue into talking about security challenges, uh, cooperation and challenges, uh we should turn to our guest. Uh, and uh, first of all, of course, Tom's joining us from London. Uh, Michelle and I are in DC. John's out in California, so we're juggling time zones. I think we should get right to welcoming Michelle Flournoy. Uh, those of you who have dealt with security issues or, or Asia know Michelle well. Uh, she was the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy in the Obama the first term of the Obama administration. She also served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration. Uh, she uh, studied at Harvard and Balliol College, so she has a, a UK connection, and also founded in 2007 the Center for a New American Security, which is one of the DC think tanks. So she's been at the center of uh, thinking and talking about China uh, for the past couple of decades, and we're very happy to have her join us. Michelle, welcome to the Pacific Century. Happy to join you. Uh, and and we want to get right into it because there's so much to talk about. Um, the the question I'd like to start us off with is, uh, in terms of DC, you actually have a, a, a you know a longitudinal perspective on dealing not only with the the broad based security challenges that the United States faces, but but particularly China, which has been a big part of your career. And so I'd like to start off by asking you, uh, it's been almost a decade since you left the Defense Department as the Undersecretary uh, of Defense for Policy. How do you see the, the the China challenge and the security environment different today that, that the Biden administration, uh, Biden administration faces from what you were dealing with uh, at the beginning of the last decade? So,
3: In the first term of the Obama administration, uh, we were... Still, of the belief that if we engaged China fully, if we fully integrated them into the global economy, we could incentivize them to embrace the international rules based order. That, in Bob Zellick's term, you know, we could make them. Uh, a responsible stakeholder we could encourage that and they would you know join the institutions play by the rules and so forth and i think that was very much you know an inherited policy from the bush administration and one that continued into the first obama term but by the end of that first term we started to have enough evidence that china really was That was not how they were thinking. You know, they had been in sort of a hide-and-bide posture, but at that point the the veil was beginning to drop, and she was starting to take some much more assertive actions, uh, whether it was in the trade space or in the security domain, such as, you know, building the artificial islands, and then after having promised President Obama face-to-face that they would never be militarized, you know, developing them as military bases and so forth. So I think by the end of the first term of Obama, the assessment of China uh, and its intent had changed. And so the policy began to, to shift as well.
1: Michelle, look, thanks for that introduction. It's interesting you've spoken about uh, the US having to use deterrence as a way of channeling uh, China's Actions in the coming years. How do you see that working? Because the island steading has happened despite U.S. fleets, and we still haven't seen uh, the rise, as it were, of military powers other than China in the region. Is this going to mean? Is this going to stay as a U.S. burden, or do you see other partners joining you?
3: Well, I think if the United States is smart, we have an opportunity to, you know, build a coalition of of states that want to deter Chinese adventurism and misbehavior, um, and that we can cooperate to get to that end. I do think you know, multilateral, informal arrangements like the Quad are a step in the right direction with U.S., Japan, Australia, and India sitting down regularly to compare notes and sometimes collaborate on their efforts. Um, but I think if you really unpack deterrence... You know, we first of all, we have to convince China that we collectively, uh, US and our allies and partners in the region, have the resolve to protect our interests um, and each other. And I think, you know, right now in Beijing, there's a very strong narrative of US decline. You know, whether they look at our handling of the pandemic, our economic situation, the internal divisions, our political unrest. And they see, oh, you know, the U.S. is going down. It's in decline, uh, as we predicted last time we had an economic crisis. And so they are, I think that Im- is emboldening for China. So the, it's very important that the U.S. get its own house in order and shore up its own domestic foundations um, to and be able to demonstrate its resolve. We also have to be more clear in communicating what it is We are willing to defend and protect um, our interests, our allies, and so forth. And then there's the capability side of the question. And here we have to really uh, think uh, more creatively, I think, about how to either deny China's aggression from being successful uh, wherever it occurs, or be able to impose the costs uh, necessary to... Uh, make them think twice uh, and and not launch the aggression in the first place. That will require a lot of investment um, in some new technologies and capabilities that are not yet uh, in the U.S. military or our allied forces.
1: Now, you, you spoke about allies there, and forgive me for carrying on for a second, but these allies, I, I, I heard the, uh, the then foreign minister of Japan telling me quite seriously that Britain was a Pacific power, and he looked forward to the Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales sailing into Okinawa Harbour. Who are the real partners in the Pacific who you think you can build up an alliance with? You mentioned the Quad. Do you think India is going to become a Pacific naval, naval power? Do you think Indonesia might one day?
3: No, I do think we should start with our traditional allies, um, certainly Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea. Um, India is very important in the Indian Ocean. Obviously, our interests in that area uh, overlap substantially. And whether they eventually become, you know, beyond the Indian Ocean, more of a Pacific power, I think that's an open question, not something that's likely in the near term. Um, But I also think, you know, there's a lot we can do diplomatically to lead uh, coalitions that... Push back against bad behavior. Um, we did. We used to do that quite successfully in various ASEAN fora, where we would show up and 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 helped develop coalitions to put push back on Chinese violations uh, of disputed area, territories and so forth. Um, Uh, And then militarily, we could be much smarter and more strategic about how we use our security assistance, our security cooperation, our joint exercises to really make sure that those are focused on building the capacity of those partners to defend themselves, but also contribute to a broader coalition.
1: Now, the U.S. has been uh, an essential, in fact, the essential partner to places like Taiwan, But there is a history, as you know, of red lines not being quite as red as some people uh, initially portrayed them. How do you see the way in which the new president, President Biden, can express US determination without sounding belligerent, but making it quite clear that defensive democracies is something that the United States will definitely stand for.
3: You know, I think personally um, we have to get back to a framework that has served Republican and Democratic administrations for quite some time, in terms of you know our, the one China policy, but also the commitment to Taiwan's uh, you know uh, independence and 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 our support for that democracy, the Taiwan Relations Act, and so forth. Um, and then we need to have you know not do a lot of public saber rattling, but a lot of private clear communication to the Chinese about what they could expect, not only from the US, but from our allies and partners in the region and the international community, were they to use force against Taiwan. Um, So I think there's some really good diplomacy backed by posturing and demonstration of capability there that is needed to communicate clearly to the Chinese.
1: Now you set out some really interesting arguments that I read a little while ago forgive me, I'm reaching back. So if I get it wrong, please correct me about the competition between Britain and Germany. And you highlighted the failures of uh, financial and tariff controls as a means of diffusing or indeed uh, reducing tensions between those countries or indeed controlling the growth of Germany. How do you see the last few years of tariffs with China and how do you see that changing?
3: I think a sort of tactical tit-for-tat trade war is not a policy. It's not a strategy for China. Um, so I think we need a much more multidimensional strategic approach because when we look at China, it's a competition on the economic front, on the technological front on the military front, and on the ideological front. There's a competition between authoritarianism and democracy. So we need a multidimensional approach. As I said, it starts with investing in the foundations of our own competitiveness here at home. So investing in Drivers like research and development and 21st century infrastructure and a competitive position in key technologies and a smart immigration policy that attracts the best and brightest from around the world. And you could go on. There's a whole domestic agenda that really is the foundation of a strong China policy. And the second foundation is our allies and partners, really engaging with them fully, really getting on the same page where we can using our investment in them more wisely to get more strategic results. And then the third piece is how we invest in our own instruments, you know, making sure we show up diplomatically and we have a strong diplomatic presence in the region, making sure we show up with interesting and meaningful economic means of engagement in the region. And then militarily, It's really going to take a shift for the United States to invest in a different mix of capabilities that can really be effective in the face of all the investment China has made in anti-access and aerial denial capabilities and strategies. So they've taken a very asymmetric approach to us. If we approach them with an attrition warfare kind of model, uh, first of all, really a stupid idea with two nuclear powers, but uh, it also won't be very effective. We need to have an asymmetric mindset in terms of how we're going to prevent them from being successful in launching any kind of coercion or aggression using military force.
0: Michelle, thanks for joining us. I, I want to welcome you to this uh, the, this unprecedented episode. You are the first American official to sit before a British Parliamentary Oversight Committee, it sounds like. That was amazing. <laughs> But I'm uh, privileged to,
1: <laughs> to to be here.
0: <laughs> but as a you know, as the lawyer, I I on the call, I, I decided to uh, do some reading about your background and I came across this personal secret you have kept hidden in all your interviews, which is that you grew up in Beverly Hills and went to Beverly Hills High 90210 like on the TV show. Amazing. But
3: I, but I lived in a red control department, so not <laughs> that's okay we'll let you we'll let you imagine
0: (laughs) (laughs) so my my actually so my serious question was um uh did growing up in california you know california has the most asians has been always been dealing with lots of chinese japanese immigration from asia did that cause you to get interested in asia does it shape the way you or other americans perceive uh china perceive asia um did yeah? Just did growing up have anything to do with your interests and the way you think about the region?
3: I would say probably not. Um, I mean, yes, in that culturally, I was you know Southern California has a very rich immigrant um, you know culture, and I you know had lots of Asian American friends and spent a lot of time exploring um, various areas. But I you know my international experience my first international experience was actually as an exchange student in Europe hmm. so that was sort of more of the formative experience I
0: would so say the record should show Tom is th- putting both thumbs up
3: yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, I mean,
1: we are still in Europe we may have left the European <laughs> Union but we're still in Europe right
3: I do think that sometimes the the transatlantic myopia that you get, or myopia that you get on the East Coast was not present. I mean, because if you grow up in California, you're always also looking further West um, to Asia because the influence is so strong.
0: Is there any, um, you know, this is my last question. There's um, sometimes I think a worry, I know HR uh, McMaster's written about this or other scholars right, that there's a worry that our misperceptions of each other, of the China, you were just talking about China's perception of us. We might have perceptions of China that are uh, might just be wrong because of culture or history. Um, do you see that going on? Is that a problem in your mind? Is there some way uh, that the Biden administration can can correct for that, or is this just is this just rational nation states going at it and there doesn't really culture doesn't matter?
3: I do think perception and culture matters, and we don't understand each other very well. I think. Um, You know, when we were in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, we had, you know, a whole academic enterprise and a whole cottage industry built around really trying to understand the Soviet Union, how they think, what their strategic calculus is, what their priorities.
0: My um, college roommate at Harvard majored in Russian, all the good that did him.
3: (laughs) Right, 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 exactly. I do not feel like we have that kind of depth of understanding of Chinese history, sort of Chinese culture, how they think about strategy, how they think about their competing priorities and so forth. So I think we have a lot of catching up to do. Um, but I also think that on the, particularly on the Chinese side, um, if you engage as I did, you know, with PLA leaders, you know, we had this, this uh, regular dialogue they have been really indoctrinated to see the United States as an implacable adversary uh, and a system that is the very nature of our system is a threat uh, to theirs. And, and that's not true of all Chinese leaders, um, but on the military side in particular, it is. And I remember one of my uh, big efforts was that you know they would always say, you are trying to contain us and we reject that and i would say we're not trying to contain you we don't think containment is an appropriate concept we don't think we can actually do it if you know we couldn't do it if we tried you know this is not containment and so to make that point i got the intelligence community to declassify what containment around the soviet union looked like in terms of military forces and installations and it was a very vivid picture you can imagine all these Dots of various types of units and installations just surrounding every piece of the Soviet Union, and then I came. We brought an unclassified and um, sort of generalized version of that. Our posture around China, and I put up the contrast, and it's very clear visual. Like this is not containment, or else it's a really yeah. you know. You're like if we wanted to contain
0: them. you, you would know it.
3: <laughs> okay, not what we would do, right? <laughs> And I I think I got about 30 seconds of cognitive dissonance. Oh, and then it was like, no, this is deception. (laughs) They, you know, she's trying to fool it. So they, they sort of reverted to what they've been taught to believe. Um, And I'm sure there's some possibility of that on both sides, but I do not think we, I think there's a lot of room for miscalculation because we don't understand each other very well.
2: Um, Michelle, I'm glad you really glad you brought up the point about the, the, the knowledge we have or don't have about China. We've actually talked about it on the show and being a, a veteran of the, um, the the area studies community in, in Russian and, you know, John's roommate did Russian, I did Russian. Uh, it, it's just very different, the the amount of energy that we poured into, as you pointed out, the history, but literature,
0: culture, religion. By the way, I, I did Latin just to show you how much foresight I had.
2: Well, you know, what goes around comes around, John. <laughs> it'll, it'll be here before you know it. Um, so, But a, it's a huge point, one that we actually like to reiterate. So I'm very glad that, that you said it, but it raises a question, um, sort of connected, on, on the degree to which, at least back then, or, or what you Uh, what you feel about today. Well, how well do we really understand Chinese security thinking? How well do we, have we translated, you know, the, the, the top thinkers, and I'm not talking about, you know, the popular things like, you know, a hundred year marathon or stuff like that, but really what, what they're writing the way we did with the Soviets and we were into their journals and we were into what the, the command colleges were saying, have we done that? for for China? Or were we doing it when you were in? Did we really have a sense of of doctrine and, and what their red lines were and that we could, you know, game out how we thought they would respond?
3: You know, I think it's a work in progress. I know that there are a number of efforts along those lines to find and translate Chinese strategic thinking and articles and writings and journals. But, you know, it's 2021 and we are, you know, kind of scratching the surface of that. Um, and we don't have the, the sort of, um, academic and think tank sort of structure to really then make sense of what it is we're reading and to debate what it means and to really question and go deep. So, you know, I think the beginnings of that are there, um, but it's not the kind of robust discipline that is drawing lots of people into it to make new careers in the way that that occurred with the Soviet Union during the Cold War.
2: So let me let me ask um quickly uh, to before I turn it back to to Tom and then and then I know John wants to to wrap us up but um you know you mentioned the the difficulty of of uh, doing what we need to do in order to to remain credible and and have the plan um how much harder uh is is that and and more specifically where are we the weakest what where are we really in trouble in your view in, in terms of the security equation in asia is it you know is it hypersonics is it uh, aircraft carriers within um you know threat rings is it the the subsurface what is it that if things went poorly we would really find ourselves in some trouble. And therefore, we need to be thinking about it today and closing that gap.
3: So we have a lot of work to do on the conceptual end in terms of how envisioning how we would operate and, if necessary, fight differently to effectively deter China, given what they're likely to be doing, which is launching massive kinetic and cyber Attacks on our networks to try to keep us from being able to see, to communicate, to move, to target with precision. Um, and we don't have a good answer for that necessarily. So there's a conceptual piece to this. But in terms of the technology, I think, you know, there are several big bets that need to be placed. Um, one is to build a resilient network of networks that will continue to enable us to operate even when they are disrupted parts of them are disrupted Um, so imagine the resilience of an electrical grid that reroutes you know when one part of it goes down hopefully more successfully than what we saw in texas recently Um, a second piece is leveraging the advent of artificial intelligence as is a decision support tool using AI to uh, speed the sorting through of all of the intelligence to really deliver the key nuggets and insights to the decision makers so that we can make better decisions faster than the adversary. Um, a third is um, really investing in autonomous and unmanned systems undersea, on the sea, in the air. Um, to augment our manned forces, so human machine teaming, if you will, um, because we'll have a huge quantitative or capacity disadvantage, you know, in any kind of situation in China's backyard, and so marrying up unmanned systems that can go into highly lethal environment with the manned systems that are, you know, we try to keep rel- more protected. That's an important approach, so you can sort of go down a list of big bets like this and I think um, identify the things that will make the most difference uh, at least in the, in the near to midterm, and then there'll be more transformative longer term you know, technologies that you know like quantum computing or you know, some of the things that are going to take more than a decade to, to really develop and field
1: so I'm hearing your talk about uh, computing and uh, remembering your earlier comment about immigration, because many of the people I speak to in the tech world, whether in the United States or in the United Kingdom or indeed anywhere else, tell me that the days of sort of simple intellectual property theft are behind us. And in many ways, uh, Chinese scientists are now well ahead. And so there's a danger that we could easily uh, find ourselves unable to compete. How do you see the United States and indeed uh, Europe and others opening up enough to learn, but not so much that we are exposed because this is a real challenge for us. And it's something that we've been looking at in the UK. It's one of the reasons we set up the China research group was to try and understand better the challenges that we face.
3: Yeah. So I think we have to use a scalpel on this problem, not a sledgehammer. You know, the right answer is not shutting off all Chinese students coming to the United States or all, you know, Chinese graduate students working in American university labs. Um, we have to identify first and foremost, you know, what it is we need to pr- protect. And then what what is sort of, you know, sort of normal scientific collaboration that doesn't pose a threat to anybody and is, you know, is good for the world. Um, we have to recognize that When we look at our most innovative ecosystems like Silicon Valley, half the founders are either immigrants or first-generation Americans. You know, this is an international enterprise. And when we can attract the best talent and get them to stay, that is the best answer. Um, But for those who are coming and going, we first have to do a much better uh, job of due diligence to really understand who people, you know, who are these people and are they who are they tied to or not? Probably 99% of the students have no affiliation with, you know, Chinese military uh, outfits or intelligence, what have you. But we have to be able to catch the whatever that small percentage is. Um, uh, Secondly, I think we need to have that better differentiation between what what are the areas where it's really sensitive work, where we want to Minimize the degree of foreign involvement or maybe minimize it to our allies or or whatever friendly, you know, people from friendly countries. Um, And then, you know, we need to keep refining that and and learning from it. Um, uh, We also have to look at the kind of money that comes into our ecosystem some of it's passive investment and it's like blood and bloodstream. It's fine. They don't get any access to IP. They don't have any influence on board decisions. It, you know, it's just money going through our companies. But then there are, there, you know, there's a certain kind of um, investment that tr- is an effort to get at that sensitive IP. And that's, again, we have to get much better at our due diligence and much more refined in our um, assessing those those situations. So, um this is a work in progress. We are not where we need to be here uh, at all. Um, And this is something I hope the new administration will make some progress in.
0: Well, thanks, Michelle. We're at the end of our time. You've been very gracious and spending this time with us. And um, as you said, it's a work in progress. So I hope you'll come back on the show in a little while and we can take a status report on how uh, the Biden administration of the United States are uh, doing. So thank you so much for joining us.
3: Great. Uh, happy to be with you all. Thanks so much.
0: Great. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.